Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Charlie Line, a filmmaker and film critic whose feature documentaries Beyond Clueless and Fear Itself use montage to interrogate and recontextualize genre and construct new narratives out of old images. His latest work, the short documentary Lasting Marks, about the 16 men prosecuted for sadomasochistic activity in Thatcher's Britain, is now streaming at fieldofvision.org after a run on the festival circuit. And Charlie was kind enough to let me record this episode in his London edit suite. Charlie picked The Clock, Christian Marclay's mind-boggling 2010 gallery installation, a 24-hour montage of film and TV clips in which a clock is shown, or the time of day is mentioned, arranged to run in real time. Whatever time it is for you, that's what time it is on the screen. There's no narration, there's no plot, there's no context. The only thing from moment to moment is the moment, so it's up to the viewer to define any meaning from one image to the next. Which is all any of us can do, really. This is someone else's movie. This is a first for the for the show in that it is a film technically that I haven't I've seen pieces of it, but I haven't seen the entirety of it. So I'm in a position. No, I mean neither of us. Yeah, but asking where do we start? Like how much of it have you seen? Are we recording by the way? Uh yeah, we're rolling. Okay. Uh yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the only people who've seen the whole thing are people who are doing it very wrong. <laughs> like, I do not think by any means the point of the clock is to watch it in its entirety. Um, so, you know, I get that impulse in the same way that people want to be completists about a lot of things, but I think it's much more of a rhythmic, um, kind of piecemeal experience than it's some sort of puzzle to be solved by consuming all 24 hours of it. Yeah, conceptually it's absolutely fascinating to me. The the idea that it started from someone just wondering idly if it was possible to document every minute through cinematic representation. And uh, Liam Lacey, uh, a Toronto critic, saw it at the National Gallery in Ottawa and did the whole thing and wrote about it in a very entertaining piece that does feel like an attempt to wrap his head around the experience in a way that it didn't want to be wrapped. Um, not that it's resistant to um, to being related, because it's still kind of a narrative, but I love the idea of it, that it is... I mean, I want, my first thought when, when you picked it is just, I wonder if I can just have that on my phone, and every time I look at what time it is, it would just throw the image from the clock. Is that like condensable as something you can just explain to people? It's such a great idea. Yeah, and I think that that suggestion is the is the window on like the whole clock conversation because I agree with you, and yet for a myriad of uh, <laughs> rights and uh, commodification reasons, uh, you obviously can't do that, and we'll never be able to do that. Yeah. Um, the yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's its its brilliance and its limitations. Uh, that I completely agree that I think you can get more or less everything there is to be got from it, or that needs to be got from it, in a couple of hours. Mm. Um, and you don't say that about many artworks, let alone films, that you need only consume like ten percent of their runtime to get it. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, part of its sort of 
charm and for me frustration is that it's very one note and I know there are like you know and obviously the people who've seen it all are very quick to say like oh it's a totally different experience at 3am than it is at 3pm and that's true partly because the the overnight sections get much more freeform um, and he's you know Christian Markley the filmmaker himself has said that this is because they struggled to fill the overnight sections so they become full of dream sequences and full of much longer sequences because they didn't have the ability to do the kind of one cut every 10 seconds that happens in the daytime. Um, so I, I, I see that there's variation there, but I would say, however, having seen, you know, 10 in the morning and 7 in the evening, it's a markedly similar experience in terms of pacing, atmosphere, um, sense of humour, all these sorts of things. Um, and I think that's partly why it is so compelling and so definitely addictive but also I feel like that's one way in which it doesn't quite achieve its stated quite immense goal of kind of capturing what it is for cinema itself as a language to have some sort of internal continuity um so yeah, it's def- I mean, it's a film I've seen bits of many times and I, every time it screens, I dutifully go along and I get something different from it. It's also a film I feel I have a very kind of fraught relationship with. What was your first experience of it? When did you first encounter it? So I saw it uh, the first place it ever played, which was the White Cube Gallery in London. Um, and it ran, I can't remember how many, it, you know, it wasn't like these big mammoth runs that, that it tends to have now in huge galleries, you know, the White Cube probably only seats like a hundred people, if that, at the time. And, um, and it was running for a few weeks, I think, maybe a couple of months. Um, and you would go along and queue and it was the same kind of, almost exactly the same setup as, as it now tends to have in these huge galleries. It was your standard white, Ikea sofas in a dark room looking at a screen Um, apparently those Ikea sofas are literally in the um, contract that you get when you acquire the film as an artistic institution so if you screen it and you get permission from him to screen it you literally have to buy those same exact Ikea sofas I mean, of course you would. That makes that makes perfect sense. And the one compromise to that is that IKEA have stopped producing the two seaters. So now, if you go along, they're always the three seaters, which does change the experience marginally. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, so I, I went along and saw it there, and I think I, I did the thing I generally do, which is imagine I'll stay for like an hour and actually stayed for two, three. Um, and yeah, like I thought it was completely spellbinding, um, and I was at that very moment, like starting to work on, uh, my first like little short film that I'd ever made, which was made from existing films. Um, and so everyone had, you know, the second I ever mentioned this was like, Oh, you gotta go and see this thing, uh, that's on the white cube. Um, and although I, you know, I had seen various of the kind of foundational texts of collage filmmaking by that point, um, it did feel like a whole kind of new beast purely because of its scale and its sort of purity of vision. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't, I'd see so much of what I'd seen had either been abstract to the point of 
kind of being a more experiential thing without much of a much concrete structure that you could hold on to yeah. or more in the vein of a kind of Tom Anderson narration driven um, video essay kind of thing. Right, more of the overview right. concept. So the clock is non-narrative, but it builds a narrative. There is a story being told, as I understand it, because I haven't seen enough of it to really comprehend the way that works. But the actors get older as the day goes on. The, the choices of, of sourcing are precise and specific you know, in a way that speaks to like a, a weird focus that oh okay wait no so this is totally new to me oh this is something that uh, that Liam noticed when he was watching he said that there were there are actors who recur there are faces that come back but the in the earlier sampling they're younger and in the older samplings of the day they're they've aged I strongly wonder whether that is viewer bias really you think I mean it's certainly possible he might have hallucinated <laughs> because I've read like so well for two reasons one I've read so many interviews with Christian Markland I don't remember ever hearing that okay and not only that but he in those interviews talks about their process him and his assistants and it sounds completely unconducive to that result oh, alright in that they in many cases had like no choice over what clip to use because they only had one, but also that it was done completely randomly. And then he would just edit it progressively from all these clips that his assistants had assembled and placed on a timeline wherever they lived. So I suppose in theory, he could then in those selections have have tried to conjure something like that, but I've never heard him mention it. Okay. And in fact, if you listen to him talk about it, he never implies anything as thoughtful as that. Okay. Um, so now I really do need to see the 24-hour experience. But also, I think, as a viewer, you you do that watching it. Like, you do try and find reason in it beyond what's there. Sure, yeah. I mean, we are building context in our heads all the time. So I'd be very interested to read that article and sort of see whether it rings true. <laughs> and obviously, I say this is someone who hasn't seen all 24 hours, so I don't know. Maybe that is totally true, but yeah. That definitely is surprising to me. Um, the yeah, wow. Okay, yeah. Wait, sorry. What was your question before that? Before you said about that? It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> no, just um, how have yeah? How have you experienced it over the years? How often do you get the chance to revisit it? So yeah, after that first time, and, and do you make a conscious effort to see? Obviously, you aim for different parts of it, but have you been watching it? in sequence from earlier to later or just jumping in whenever it's available? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not available very often. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about I just missed why. the tape, apparently. Yeah, it was, so it was at the tape, and it was, like, the tape screening recently is the first time it's come back to London since its premiere in a major way, and that's, you know, nine years on. So it, it did, after the White Cube, it played at the South Bank Centre, I think, like, a year or two later, Um, And then it went away for nearly a decade. And when the tape got it back and promoted its return, they were promoting it like, you know, Beyonce was coming to town. (laughs) Like it was bizarre. Like this is a piece of video art and they were putting billboards up that just said the clock returns. No clarification of what that was. No, like, I mean, it's just, yeah, like it, like it's an icon, which it is. I mean, is there any more famous piece of video art? I 
don't know. I mean, yeah, lemonade. But uh, right, but, I mean, but the, the but gallery that's off the short term burst, right? That's video a, that's off, a obviously being an existingly tautological term, uh, which I'm is very being, controversial. But uh, I'm being incredibly facetious. Um, but yeah. what gallery art video is as iconic as that? I don't know. Just it already nine years after it was made, probably the year it was made. Yeah, I mean, I saw the clock. The only time I've seen it theatrically was at South Bank Center. Right. Um, I don't even remember which trip it was, but we, you know, I've been coming to London roughly once a year since 2007. And it would have been, I want to say 12 or 13, that I just wandered into it and watched, sat for at least an hour, maybe more. And just, it was in a little tiny space. It was not a big presentation, but it was just the whole world in those moments. And I think it would have been around three o'clock in the afternoon. But I don't remember. Like, I don't remember the time, which is the most absurd aspect of it. It just took <laughs> me away. And I just remember the flow of it and how, you know, you, you get this moment of, oh, my God, he actually pulled it off. And then you realize, no, I'm 15 hours into this thing. Yes, he pulled it off. And then you, just this flow of images and you're just constantly, um, it, felt, it felt like someone was holding me by the chin and just moving my head, swerving through history. This is from 1942. This is from 1982. This is from 1996. No, don't try to find context. It's not like year by year. There's no, there's, he's not doing it, you know, in 10 year gaps. It's just whatever's in front of you. And your mind starts to knit it together. And yeah, I mean, what is it? The Kuleshov effect where you're desperately trying to figure out what two shots are related, like why the three shots you saw, what the scene, what the dog wants, you know, dog, bird, dog, dog wants a bird. But so wait, out of interest, have you seen it since? I've only 20, seen clips. Well, yeah, I have not had the experience of the clock. I've watched. I found some of like online and so on. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, w- I was going to say like my thinking like I'd only just with you asking realized that there was fully like seven or eight years between my two viewings of it. Wow. And I will say. It it came down hugely in my estimations a second time. Really. Um, and I think even when, when you first asked me to come on the podcast and we were originally going to record this maybe a year ago, yeah, last year. I was working on that seven year old, uh, memory of it. And then I rewatched it at the Tate like two months ago. Um, and I'm still just as excited to talk about it. And if anything, more fascinated by it, but yeah, my, my picture of it is much more, um, complicated now okay and i think uh that's partly you know i i want to kind of acknowledge and reckon with the extent to which that is because it's now iconic Mm -hmm. and especially because it exists in a form that i have worked in many times i'm sure that that would affect it yeah so it's you know like if i mean in you know in fairness everything i've made uh using existing films has been an hour and a half long at the most and like not shown in gallery context. It's not that much of a point of comparison for most people, but certainly even in explaining to people the concept of a film made from existing films, if they have a reference point at all, it's going to be that one. Sure, yeah. Um, and so that stature does does make you want it to, to kind of be a perfect distillation of, of everything that that form can do, which is what I found frustrating about this <laughs> recent trip, I think, because it's... I still find it completely remarkable on a conceptual level 
and on a I mean I think what's interesting about it is just like your friend finding that thing in it about actors getting older across yeah. the course of the day whether or not that's intended and whether or not that's even objectively present is kind of beside the point yeah yeah um I think so much of it is what you find in it and in fact I've uh, you know over the years talked about it in various different ways and thought about it in various different ways I don't think any of which are supported by things that Christian Markley has ever said about it or even accepts as readings of it um you know I thought like a very baseline interpretation of it was that it's about how films are all operating on the same kind of underlying circadian rhythm um and that you know you could get a computer to assemble this film based on when the scenes are set and you would still emerge with a film where everyone is rushing just before every o'clock yeah uh, and everyone is you know kind of quiet and meditative at like four in the morning but then everyone's in a rush at seven in the morning um and that's what's interesting about it is that it's it's a, almost a document of like the involuntary instincts of cinema mm-hmm. um i've seen I, like i went to a q a with christian markley and he seems to outright reject even that interpretation really like, I don't know if the q and I went to, he was just feeling particularly sort of <laughs> flip. But he'll be asked a question about, like, you know, what it reveals about X, Y, Z. And he'll really just come back with, like, you know, oh, I just think it's interesting to, to go from one film to a completely different film and, and see how that goes. Yeah. Like, he almost willfully talks about it in an extremely naive way. Yeah, but that's it, right? If you're trying to get people to interpret it however they like you can't you can't color it you can't offer that's the generous explanation yeah that's it <laughs> or he's just a dick the impression I got was that he's not a particularly thoughtful man but maybe that's oh. unfair he um, he was I think he was on the defensive as well mm-hmm. so maybe that's an, a part of it but um, I just wonder if you're not a particularly thoughtful person but you assemble the film because you don't care does that, I mean, you don't care about the connections people make. Does that leave it open even more so, right? Because oh, totally. there is no guiding hand. I, just... I think it does, like, really his, his intentions or, or ambitions are really beside the point that the film is a completely singular entity and can mean so much in the eyes of so many people. Mm-hmm. I will say the other thing that that really hit home on this recent trip, and possibly this is being a bit older than I was when I first saw it, is its fairly severe blind spots. Yeah. Like, I think it's... The Western bias. <laughs> the Western bias. Oh, oh yeah. for a second, I thought you meant the genre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be... I don't think you could pull that. There are quite a lot of Westerns in yeah. it. It's a good point. Now that you mention it. But, um, yes, no, totally. I mean, it... The so, canon has the canon and all that. And I think that is one thing you can't separate from the conditions of its making, which is, it was made here. It was made in London. It was made literally just down the road from where we are. Um, he had an office in Shoreditch, um and a team of researchers who I think were mostly sort of film students and young people. 
um, and they would rent films mainly from the close-up film center which is like 10 minutes from here Um, and their choices were like arbitrary apparently they started with you know films that had time in the title or films that had clock in the title (laughs) or anything where they thought there was like a a disproportionate likelihood that it would contain a, a relevant scene but then they were just going essentially randomly yeah. and what is randomness but a process that will inevitably reveal someone's biases um, and so despite the fact that close-up sent to this rental shop is an overwhelmingly global selection of film you know it's probably got more world cinema than certainly any video store in the UK he ever had mm-hmm. um, there is just an overwhelming bias towards mainly US but predominantly Anglo sphere films um, and I can see that if you were like you know speaking for myself when I first saw it in my early 20s like if I'd been in my early 20s hired on a presumably fairly low wage to go and sit in a room and cut clips for Christian Mark like yeah. I might have wanted to like rewatch Rushmore <laughs> quick, quicker than I would want to like sit down and watch the story of the last chrysanthemum um, and so I think perhaps that's one way that you ended up with a film that is I don't know the actual statistics but it, it, watching it recently I would say at least 90% English language yeah and the stuff that's not English language is 90% French. Yeah, well, Cleo from 5 to 7 is the first thing you think of when you think of a, a, right. a limitation of time. Yeah. But it is, it's the thing that I was trying to figure out is, is it simply because Hollywood defines a certain type of mass market, easily approachable cinema? If you want to reference things that people recognize, you absolutely, you would go to 100 years of, of Hollywood. But... Even, yeah, 10 years ago, we related to international cinema differently. And, and um, my first thought was, well, does anyone ever look at a watch in a Satyajit Ray film? Like, is there, there must be, but I can't, it doesn't immediately come to mind. And so does that mean I would discard the whole thing and never think of it again? Or just in the moment, turn my head and find something else because there's always something else. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not specifically about Hollywood films. It's not specifically drawing on only those movies. So therefore... The, uh, the, the the things that it eliminates or that were overlooks are more obvious. I mean, if you just said, I'm only making this movie about this particular cinema, then you can argue about why you've done that, but at least you've you've created the parameters. And Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, totally. Right. Like, I, you know... We're just aware and, of and this is not to uh, render something uncritiquable, but I made a film about teen movies, and it was expressly about a particular strand and a particular era of American teen movies. Right. Um, and that was a choice that was certainly criticised by some people and perhaps fairly, but it, it, was, it certainly wasn't a unthinking choice. Um, I chose to do that because I thought there was something interesting, A, about their shared space and B, about their dominance and the way that I, even as someone who didn't grow up in the US, uh, had lived them essentially. Yeah. And I think it's quite hard to make an argument for the clock as anything other than at least an involuntary depiction of a kind of cinematic bias. And in fact, I went to a a kind of in-conversation event with Christian Marclay at the Tate when it was recently on, 
and the film theorist Erica Balsam was hosting and she um, to be honest this was a bit of a theme of the evening where she would tee up quite a thoughtful way of interpreting something about the clock and he would kind of smash it down um, where she posited she almost I don't know if she was trying to find like a polite way to bring up the, the biases of the film but she posited that the film on the one hand functioned as a kind of living portrait of cinephilia or, or sort of cinematic availability as it was in London in the year 2010 or the years leading up to 2010. Yeah. Um, and that therefore, you know, it's, it's Anglo biases were oh, to do with the fact that, you know, if I went to a blockbuster video in 1998 in London, it would be 90% English language. Right. Um, I think that's kind of undermined by the fact that he was using the one video shop that isn't massively um, English language uh, biased, but... Um, but it opens the door to that conversation. Exactly. And he just didn't run with that at all. So I think <laughs> it, you know, I think most likely, and again, you can only guess, is it's an involuntary portrait of the viewing biases of the people who made it. Yeah. And it's not just one person, which is even more interesting. In that it's this aggregate of appeal. I like this, I like this, I like this. Oh, and this might have a shot of a clock in it. But I, And I'll say, you know what, even if... Uh, there is a, another layer to it as well, where, like, having... You know, the, so the, the film I made after the teen movies film was a film about horror cinema, which was mm-hmm. called Fear Itself, and that um, was vastly more international. Um, and I will say that especially when you're viewing for the purposes of, a, of an essay film when you're of, often having to do multiple things at once. So maybe you're clipping sections out as you go, or you're taking notes or whatever else. And when you're doing this constantly back to back to back, there is something more, almost like a kind of break when you get to do a film that's not subtitled because you can be, right. you know, half noting and the half whole, looking. The and, whole brain, yeah. Yeah, and, and whereas when you're doing that with a subtitle film, it does require all your attention for the full duration of the film, which is obviously a good thing. That is how we should watch films, sure. especially if we're going to then critique them. But uh, I could get that you could be, you know, halfway into a day of that work and not want to sit and watch a three-hour subtitled film. You might want to watch something that is more lighthearted or certainly that you could watch with one eye open while you're doing something else. Yeah. Um, or something you're just familiar with and if you're working out of London you'll be more familiar with English language stuff just because you know, unless you are so fortunate to live in a household where your parents are watching international cinema all the time we grow up with the cinema of our own language it's cool. just how it works and everybody forgets that it's not an excuse it's simply the reality of how we're all raised and you have to go out and find the new things and so yeah when you're moving into clips and, and and extracting, you're going to want to do the things you already know anyway, right? Like that's It's not nostalgia so much as the thing that you know you can access. Mm-hmm. And I think like, there's another really interesting element in, in the way that the clock does it in the, is that, that it's not sub, there's no subtitles. Mm-hmm. And so the few, you know, maybe the one clip in 20 that isn't in English, maybe that's unfair, one in 10, um, is not subtitled in English. And I have to say, my gut reaction to that was positive. You know, I think that's... Because that immediately led me 
to think, oh, this is a film that's been made for an international audience. And the idea is that you get what you get and you don't get what you don't get. Right. Um, but that it's not presuming English language, especially because I imagine it's going to be a very difficult film to subtitle in different regions or whatever else because it's 24 hours long and synchronizing the subtitles and yeah. so on. Um, so I liked that in principle, except that because of this huge bias in the clip selection, it's almost impossible not to feel like the presumed viewer is English language speaking. And, you know, if I go in with a Spanish speaker who doesn't speak English and I don't speak Spanish, I'm going to get 10 times, probably, you know, I don't know how many Spanish clips sure. there are in there, but probably a hundredth as many as the English clips. So our viewing experiences are in no way going to be comparable. Um, so I think that that's almost like a hint at a at maybe a better version of the clock. Yeah. Um, but one that ultimately, to me, just heightens my awareness of, of quite how distorted its its vision of cinema is. Mm-hmm. God, you could do. I mean, you could do an, a truly international one. You can call it World Time or something. <laughs> just to, just to fully differentiate it and explain that this is the purpose of it. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and you do end up with. I mean, it's absolutely uh, dependent on the English canon, and not even the canon really. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in there. But I was just I I was so delighted to hear that it worked over the range of genres my segments didn't have apparently Night of the Living Dead pops up in there somewhere but I don't remember it uh, or maybe it was 10 after 3 in the morning and that's why I didn't see it but I might have just missed it but things like that where you are not seeing the time but hearing it spoken it was on the broadcast so it must have been 3am um, where the yeah, you need to speak English to know that that is what is happening, to understand the context of this moment. Because there's no visible clock, there must be a reason, and if you don't, on the most basic level, if you can't hear it, you can't understand it. Yeah, and like, look, I... I... sympathize with the fact that a choice had to be made there, in one way or another, and that if it was going to be... And I don't know what I... I mean, the thing is, it the, the film, whether or not they could have imagined this when they were making it. The film is now commodified and valued to the point where it would actually be very, very easy to commission subtitles in every different language they sure. wanted, yeah. even though it's 24 hours long. You know, So that if it showed in Japan, they could have a 24-hour Japanese translation of all but the maybe 20 clips in the 24 hours that are in Japanese. Um, but... It does, you know, I mean, but yes, I sympathize that, that that might not have been imaginable when they were making it. I still think they could have imagined that this would garner enough yeah, interest that people would analyze these things. I mean, you know, it, like I say, I don't think these flaws lessen its, its kind of gut impact as a truly singular piece of work. I mean, nothing comes close to it in terms of what it's doing on a structural level and what it's doing on a kind of um, rhythmic level. Um, but yeah, I think they, they complicate the experience. Yeah. I mean, the collage form is something else too. It's a, it's a new... Oh, it's not, it's not new, but it's a, it feels that the age of digital has made it new, that there's a, that there's a flexibility and a, and a fleetness to it that's possible just because you're not 
physically stitching it all together. You can, you know, three buttons and you have two scenes linked uh, without damaging the original material. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's only, certainly only since, you know, the birth of D- DVD yeah. and offline and, you know, um, non-linear editing that, that we could have possibly made this film. Um, but of course, collage filmmaking, found footage filmmaking, whatever you want to call it, has existed for you know over half a century, yeah. and and so it's it's inevitable, but perhaps slightly um, misleading that the, that this has come to be thought of as kind of like the birth yeah. of a whole new kind of cinema. But I do think it's um, it's really the. It was really kind of like the first huge text in what feels like a kind of second generation of this kind of work because, like you say, of its accessibility. I mean, the irony is that Christian Markley was an incredibly established voice uh, who had a real budget behind him because he had a gallery and so on um, to make this work. And yet it still feels like the first work or the first major work in an era when this kind of thing can be made by anyone at a relatively affordable cost. Well, that's it, right? I mean, you you don't have to pay for prints. You can... This is a constant conversation with filmmakers how how digital has changed the the landscape of cinema, of, of conventional cinema, in ways we don't fully appreciate. It's why movies are longer now. Uh, it's not as expensive to send out a, a, a hard drive when you know you don't have to print real seven and add an extra four thousand dollars to every print of the film you've made, or uh, the fact that you can have multiple screenings in a single venue from a single file means that you don't have to worry about booking multiple prints. And so, if a movie runs one hundred twenty-seven minutes instead of ninety-eight minutes, eh, you know, theater two will pick up the slack. It's fine. You're not losing. You don't have to spill and fill the audiences. And with this, like a 24-hour film would be prohibitive, period, I think. I mean, yeah, like how long did Histoire de Cinema take God up? Like 10 years? Oh, at least. And I yeah. think that comes out as, what, four hours? Something a bit longer? Or 20, yeah. Uh, and that aside, obviously, who could have made that film? But got up, but someone who had access to every archive yeah. and every library and the goodwill of every exactly. Not just the cineast in the world. But the, the invitation. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's undoubtedly like a democratization that allows for for films like this to be made, mm-hmm. which is obviously very ironic, uh, given that the film has been one of the most ruthlessly commodified yes. and commercialized and protected pieces of cinema ever created um got no copyrights for anything just fair use all the way the story about it right is terrifying i mean the um and it's interesting you know and actually this was one thing that in that q a i thought he had a good answer for and it was characteristically blunt but i think he kind of hit the nail on the head where someone was like uh, you know, oh, what? A, someone asked the inevitable copyright question, and they were like, you know, how do you get away with it? Is it fair use? Is it this, that, or the other? Um, and he refused to even engage in the premise of the question, and instead just said, "Look, when it comes to things like this, it's about power and it's about money. And so, if there was no party that felt that they were going to lose money by me making this, um, then we didn't have to worry." And he's right. Because they knew they were making it for a gallery. They knew it was going to be so long that any one clip was going to 
just become insignificant in the scheme of things. And he knew that the power of his gallery would mean that probably no one would try it either. And that the legal precedents have historically really, with, when it comes to fair use, have really supported work sure, that yeah. exists in a gallery. So he, I admired that, that he didn't rush to, to claim, you know, oh no, this is textbook fair use and we did this, that and the other to clear it. He was just like, copyright is not a question of fairness, it's a question of power. And he's totally right. Because the work is completely dependent on who's making it, where it exists, who the, you know, copyright holders that it affects are. And it's exactly the same with the way that he's now enforcing his copyright over the film. Like, it, it's all about power and it's all about money. So I admired that. That said, it's funny because in the UK, where it was made, obviously, our fair use laws, what's here called fair dealing, mm-hmm. um, were completely rewritten about three or four years after the clock was made. And the clock was one of the pieces of work that was cited oh. in the changing of the laws. So effectively, fair dealing in the UK was rewritten to include the clock. Okay. To kind of bring the clock under its umbrella. So it hadn't been previously? No, because we never had... Fair dealing in the UK used to be far more restrictive than fair use in the US. Okay. Um, and we never had... Basically, the, the key difference is that in the US, it's all about what's fair, it's all about what's transformative, and intentions are less important. So whatever you're intending to do, whatever you're like, whatever category of thing you're achieving is kind of besides the point as long as whatever you do is transformative. So if you're Richard Prince and you just take someone else's photograph and you hang it up as yours, the transformation is the authorship and the context and all this sort of stuff. In the UK, it was always much more about what you were intending to do. And it had to be one of a set group of things. So the main one would be criticism and review. Um, there were also things available for uh, you know, various like academic contexts. But the two of the things that we were very significantly missing, which were well established in the US, were parody and pastiche. Okay. And so it was only with these 2014 rewrites that we got pastiche, which was what would allow the clock to exist. And in fact, they cited the clock in creating the pastiche exemption. So interestingly, it kind of could be legal now. Obviously, it didn't hurt it that it wasn't in, 24, sure. in 2010. Yeah. Um, but no, I, yeah, I, I, I think he's right that, it, that legality is, is kind of besides the point when it comes to a lot of these things and that it's much more about position and power. Yeah, it's a good lever into the conversation, if nothing else. Totally. The idea that we're having this conversation because you came to see my thing which means your interest is the thing that made the thing valid. And I'm oversimplifying it ludicrously. But as far as, as, far as your own stuff for uh, Beyond Clueless and Fear Itself, those were constructed as instructionals, really. Well, maybe not Fear Itself. Fear Itself has a narrative that's, that, that I love, <laughs> that is just so insidious and subtle. Uh, it's the thing the clock doesn't do, which is weaponize the information that you're taking in from your own memory. The thing that you see, the thing you remember, if you, you connect this moment, you, oh, I remember this from the original source, and then you start listening to the, the, the voiceover a little more carefully to, to stitch things together and make a new story. Um, it's, it's similarly and weirdly, have you seen uh, Homecoming, the Amazon series? Sam Esmond? No, no. Um, you may or may not have heard this. He soundtracked the entire thing with library music, but they're all scores from 
70s and 80s horror films mostly huh. uh, to the point where in the second half it just tips all the way over into Halloween 3 in the dead zone <laughs> and it's masterful um, it uses the melancholy undertones of Michael Kamen's music for the dead zone just just as suspense beats in a weird way it's wow. sort of, and, and there's these long string moments that just pull you in and push you out and pull you in, like being rocked to sleep that's kind of the theme that, of that whole movie the dead zone and in Homecoming, it's about people waking up, so they're playing the music against its intention, and it's brilliant. And then there's a there's a, a an electronic kind of twitch and quiver in the Halloween Three score by Carpenter and Howarth that is used to uh, connect cell phone calls and surveillance and, and replicate the the podcast was all about found audio and conversations being overheard, and so that's what there are these little going on where people are talking on phones and. I mean, it's consistent throughout the entire 10-episode series, but it wasn't until episode 7 or 8 that I'm like, wait a minute, is this... I thought it was temp music. I saw the early screening version, and is this temp music? Is this... Because this is genius temp music. This is the greatest idea. And it turns out that it was not temp, but a deliberate attempt to recontextualize these old scores and throw you off just slightly. And Fear itself does it with the soundtrack in a different way, in a completely different way, because we're rewriting the information based on what we're hearing and yeah where does it come from how did you hit on that when did you know it would work well the, yeah I mean and it's interesting that to draw that distinction between those two films I made because the, the so Beyond Clueless the first one is much more direct in its criticism and in, in, in honesty that that wasn't to do with the decision to do that wasn't a legal one that came from a desire to kind of subvert people's expectations of the teen genre is kind of frivolous and yeah. unworthy of criticism. So applying quite a kind of almost severe, um, omnipotent kind of voice to critique those films felt like more of a subversion. Um, but for what it's worth, it would have been difficult in the UK at the time to push much beyond that anyway, because it was pre the rewriting right. of Fair Dealing. Um, and then by the time I did Fear Itself, that was straight off the back of the rewritten law. Um, and I was lucky because I was making that for the BBC, um, that in fact the lawyer I was working with at the BBC was one of the people who had helped rewrite the law. <laughs> so she was very up on, on what exactly, exactly was yeah. possible. Um, and so that was really what opened the door to the moments in Fear Itself that critique implicitly mm-hmm. rather than explicitly. And like you say, that, that kind of, I mean, to critique is a very like particular way of putting it, but essentially what you can mean by that is anything that causes people to view something through different eyes or with a different perspective. Because, you know, if you watch a film one way when you're first watching it, and then I make you watch it in a different way, I'm making you critique it Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the most like basic sense. So that can happen through music or through... Uh, narration that isn't directly about the clip but obliquely informs your viewing of it in some way and that for me was so stimulating to do um, but really wouldn't have been possible in the UK until basically that year Um, so it was very yeah like challenging and interesting a process and does you know and so so it relates to the clock in a literal legal sense in that the clock was what was one of the precedents that made that kind of work possible here Um, but I do also think that, you know, 
voluntarily or involuntarily, I think that's what the clock is doing too. It's, it's creating a new work to change the way that you see all of those individual works. Um, and so on that level, like, yeah, I think it's a, a hugely significant piece of work and a really influential one on me and others. Yeah. Well, well I mean, I was going to say the, the closing question on the podcast is usually what of this film that you've selected has, have you borrowed or stolen from or, or used in your own, absorbed into your own creative DNA? But that's what this last hour has been about, really. I mean, it's all, it's all part of it. Yeah. And I also think it's like it, I think the most, you know, and this is not necessarily true of every filmmaker that works with found footage or that works in collage or whatever you want to call it. But I think in some ways it's almost the, the responsibility of filmmakers working in this form to think about the external battles of the form and the associated questions of this kind of filmmaking, even the ones that aren't contained within the films. So questions around copyright, questions around IP, questions around fair use and the commodification of the commons or whether it's work even exists in the public commons or not, uh, are all such key questions that to me are completely inescapable when you're talking about a work like The Clock, which is interesting because Christian Markley seems to want to escape them. Um, But yeah, I think it, it, to me, you can't separate everything that makes The Clock fascinating from the context of its creation and its reception, because all of that is fascinating. And to watch the clock be so celebrated and so beloved, including by the Hollywood system, that if its rules were working effectively would have prohibited the making of the clock. You know, the clock can only be made because people have found ways to get around DRM. Right. To put it in blunt terms. And yet the people who are ensuring that DRM remains a viable force in international filmmaking were the first to celebrate the clock as this like beautiful ode to cinema that should be cherished at every opportunity. So there's, you know, all kinds of weird complicities and ironies to, to this film, but I still think it's a fantastic springboard for a conversation around this sort of work. Yeah, clearly. I just, um, I'm still obsessed about the idea of world time now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, Christian Marclay is defending his IP over the clock very fiercely uh, but there's nothing to stop you making your own clock. That's true. As long as I don't use his structure, like his specific edits, I guess. Well, that's the question. Well, I, suppose I mean, I think effect. Christian Markley would probably tell you uh, that it's all about power and it's all about money and he doesn't care if you make your own clock because it won't be as successful as his. Yeah, that's it, right? And you're not Christian Markley and you, you're, you're not, you know, signed up to the White Cube and... Uh, but it would be interesting to see how he reacted if someone did make a more successful clock somehow. Um, yeah, how do you... Because that would throw into question the, the value of, of his work. How do you critique the clock? You have to make another clock. Make another clock. A different clock. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Um, he's, he's kind of... I mean, it's a weird... I also wonder how he feels about it just on a level of light. Like, if, if I have qualms about the clock being the titanous work of collage filmmaking that is impossible to out, outdo in the, in the public consciousness. Yeah. can't imagine how he feels yeah. about making any more work because, Jesus Christ, I mean, that Q&A I went to uh, was 
build as a, a retrospective look at the work of Christian Markley. And I'm almost certain from recollection that they didn't once mention a single other work of art. <sighs> Which, and no wonder, yeah, like, sure, it, you know. Define yourself so fully. But is there any other, I mean, it's even the other iconic works of art across any medium, it's hard to think of an artist who's known only for one work of art and it's that huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there one? I mean, really, no. I, everybody else repeats. I guess the Mona Lisa. Well, that was my first thought, but she <laughs> did other things. I mean, there's... Yeah. It's not the only thing. I'm just... I feel like that's so tight in us that you can't compare any of the rest of it to it. But then, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not the same, really, is it? Yeah, Guernica, still just one of many. Yeah. Uh, well, not one of many Guernicas, but one of many works from, from one man. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, he's not dead yet. It's worth saying. Do you yeah, want, yeah, <laughs> he yeah. might make... He might make other work, but... But ten, but ten years later, what must that be like to have set yourself this intellectual challenge that became a thing so massive that it dwarfs literally everything else you've done? Yeah, I mean, I can't it even. Like, I suppose on one hand, he must have known, you know, it took four years, so he must have known it was going to be the most significant work of art probably that he would ever make in terms of time commitment. Yeah, if it, if it landed, it would land heavy. But nonetheless, yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a kind of thing to follow I think he even said I'm trying to remember now but I think he said he he began another work quite soon after it and abandoned it really? and I don't know if that was to do with the, the sheer scale of the clock's success but it must have a have a you know contributing factor it certainly would for me yeah because yeah imagine unveiling new work Except that I suppose he'd just go back to the forum he existed in before, and it would be for a gallery audience, and it would not be, you know, on billboards all yeah. over London. Yeah. But would you, yeah, would you want to follow it with something smaller? You know, it's like paralyzing you. Like it's Kubrick's Napoleon, he would have made it if he got the money together, but I think on some level, after the career he had, he was probably happy not to have to make it, because there's no way it could possibly live up to the expectation of Kubrick's Napoleon. It's also just, I mean, I think the clock is one of the, it's sort of the ultimate, um, you know, people go on a lot about, about the, the artistry and the, the kind of curiosity and sense of humor of his edits and and the way that it's constructed. Mm -hmm. I kind of disagree. I think the clock is kind of the ultimate, like anyone could have made it, but no one did. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, it's, it's a once in a lifetime, brilliant idea. And Christian Markley had that idea and he made it. I'd be totally lying if I said that I don't think there are dozens of other people who could have made it better. Um, but no one did. Yeah. And that's his victory. And it's a brilliant piece of work. Very flawed, but brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Charlie Line, whose latest documentary, Lasting Marks, is now streaming at fieldofvision.org and on charlieline.com where you can also find most of his other work, including the full version of Fear Itself. You can find Charlie on Twitter at CharlieLine, all one word. And while you cannot currently find the clock anywhere in the world, I'm sure it'll be back in a museum somewhere before too long. Art never goes away. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support. 
and thanks for listening.